Welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. I am joined by Sean Francis, who is one of the founders of Ashbury Park Football Club. So, Sean, thanks so much for giving me your time today. Yeah, no problem, Derek, no problem. If you want to start off, for those who maybe haven't heard of uh, APFC and yourself, maybe just give us a bit of background on, on you and, and a bit about the football club or soccer club, as you would say, over in the state. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, APFC is the uh, the biggest club you've never heard of. It's like like what we like to say about ourselves. Um, been doing it in real life around five years now, but we kind of claim this long and storied history that doesn't exist. Um, and you know, the idea about it really is just sort of, you know, a football club for that's actually for modern football. You know, you hear all these things. People say, "Oh, they're against modern football." You know, all these supporters, and we're like, "Well." what if we actually say we're for modern football just to be contrary and just to be a little punk rock maybe. But, uh, you know, we basically like, Oh, let's have a club that does all the things that a modern football club does. Right. We've, we've got merchandise, we've got supporters, we've got endorsement deals and sponsors and that we just don't actually play any games. <laughs> I think that's what's amazing about it. It's so unique. And the, the first time uh, I heard about it was, I was actually reading Obviously, I'm a big music fan and also a football fan myself. So I've seen the names spattered about with some bands wearing the merch and things like that. But uh, the first time I proper read about it was in the New York Times. And I was thinking, what is going on here? This is a football team that doesn't play football. Well, you know what, man? Guess what? Every club in the world right now is Asbury Park FC, you know? <laughs> I mean, I think everyone right now is like, I think what's going on with this coronavirus is kind of, testing our original concept you know our original idea was like can we do this without actually playing game? will people pay attention will people follow it you know part of the inspiration was my son my son was like probably about nine years old and he unfortunately he loves chelsea okay As, won't judge him on that one Sean. Won't judge him. <laughs> well i'm a full of men so i will <laughs> judge him on that <laughs> i love him but i will judge him on it um but you know he's Chelsea's his team, and he has the Chelsea jersey, the Chelsea bed sheets, Chelsea posters on the wall. He's, you know, that's his thing. But when I tell you, he only watches maybe three full Chelsea games a year. Like, younger, and it's a, I think it's partly a generational thing, but the younger kids, they follow football more than they watch football. You know what I mean? Yeah, so he's got, six, he's got six different apps on his phone that tell him, you know, the scores and what the transfer rumors are and who the new coach is. And he tells me what's going on half the time before I know, but it's interesting. They don't sit and watch full matches. They watch all the highlights on YouTube and all that. But so uh, that was a little bit of the inspiration. And then I was like, Oh, well, can we stretch this into a real thing where, you know, people want to keep up with what's going on with this club, even though there's no games. And you know, from my point of view, it's, it's worked. And now what's interesting for the past two months, we've seen it, at a global scale, we've seen, you know, cl you know, big clubs like PSG, you know, just basically putting anything on their Twitter and Facebook and Instagram accounts, but games, you know, yeah, it's yeah. everything from, oh, buy this merch to here's some highlights from, you know, a cup final from 10 years ago. Here's an interview with this club legend. Here's, you know, it's, it's anything but actual football. So it's fascinating. I think everyone's kind of we were pioneers, Derek. We were pioneers. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's amazing. I, I really thought, I was fascinated when I first read it, and taking it back to its roots, as, as you says, it's almost five. Or you would say five years, but on the badge, and so it would say that you were established in twenty fourteen. Oh so yeah, so it's six years now. Yeah, 
Sixes, what, what were those early days like when you first ran the idea? Because it's yourself and one of your friends, I believe, that, that started it. Yeah, yeah. My buddy, uh, Ian Perkins, he's a great guy, Englishman. He was, at the time, living in New Jersey, stranded at the Jersey Shore in the middle of a winter where nothing goes on here. It's like, it would be like, you know, if you lived in some coastal Scottstown, I don't know, if you lived in Ayr and yep. it's, you know, January, there's nothing going on there. It's just cold, it's gray, it's wet, there's nothing going on. And we were sitting down in my house in the basement watching some watching some football match on TV. I don't know what it was. And we're like, oh, man, I just want to go out and play. I want to go play. And we're like, yeah, we should do that. And we're like, it's too cold. Yeah. We're too old. Yeah. Someone will get hurt. Yeah. And we're like, what if we start a team and we just didn't actually play? And we're like, oh, we had, we, we kind of laughed to ourselves and we both locked eyes and we're like, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> that just might work, you know? So one of the first things we did was like, just started looking at like, you know, what are those things that football fans um, really react to? And like my day job is in marketing. I do social media um, for a bunch of brands. Um, I've, you know, Nike, Heineken. I work for Major League Soccer. I used to run all their social media for the league. Like it's, it's what I do. Yeah, it's what I do, you know. So I started looking at, you know, what are those things fans react to? And uh, the first thing I went to was stadium plans. You know, anytime a, a, a club puts out a a new uh, rendering, like, oh, we're, we're proposed this new stadium, and they put out the renderings of what it looks like, all the fans, you know, spend a whole day on Instagram or Twitter just debating it. And blah, 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 blah. So I found this guy online through this website, and I think he was in Sri Lanka, I want to say. He paid him like $50, and he was like an architecture student, and he made these renderings of a stadium on top of this this old building that's, you know, on the beach in Asbury Park, that's like a very legendary building. Every band's played there, Springsteen, The Clash, everyone, you know? Yeah. And we put it out, and people, we just put it out in a very matter-of-fact way that that you kind of looked at it and you're like, is this real? Is this not real? You know? Like, you couldn't really tell. And it, it took off. It buzz, doesn't it? It creates that interest there where people are thinking, what's going on? Is this, this is exciting. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was, it was, it was really fun. And it kind of took off to the point where, you know, at one point, like uh, this guy, Stephen Goff, who's like a big uh, football writer here in the States, he writes for the Washington Post. Like, you know, he put it on his blog on the website on Washington Post. And I think it took about an hour before someone realized it was a load of crap. <laughs> he took it down. <laughs> no way. Yeah. But yeah, that's fun. You know, we like to have, we, we like to have fun with the joke, you know. And, and I suppose for, for yourselves and, also for the community that's really bought into it. As, as you mentioned earlier, I think maybe before we came on air, you know, Ashbury Park is a, a beach town, a coastal town. It's really synonymous for me, certainly with Springsteen, as you mentioned, and also a really thriving music scene. And you guys seem to have totally captured that music scene and brought the, the sport and music together for this project. Yeah, you know, um, I, my background, yeah, is sport. Like I said, I've done social media for over a decade now didn't intend to i just kind of happened into it but you know like i said done it for a lot of uh football brands and and things like that before that i was in the music industry i worked at uh mtv for a long time worked for a bunch of record labels i've been a dj for 20 years so it's definitely something that's in my blood you know and then ian who i started doing this with he is a guitar player um he plays uh uh he did he was touring guitar player for Gaslight Anthem. I mean, 
Yeah, and then he also plays with Brian Fallon, the singer for Gaslight Anthem on his solo things. And then he does his own music as well. Um, so, yeah, it's just not, you know, it, it was just kind of this natural thing for us, you know, just because he's a big football fan into music. I'm a big football fan into music. We just kind of combined our loves. And, you know, the cool thing about both of us having that background is I know a lot of players from my time working for Major League Soccer. I spent, you know, a year of World Cup qualifying, traveling with the U.S. Uh, men's team, you know, so I know a lot of those players. I know a lot of musicians. Ian obviously knows a ton of musicians because he's on the road eight months out of the year playing Reading Festival and everything else, you know, so he just, you know, between the two of us, we're able to kind of put put the shirts on a bunch of different football players, put it on a bunch of different rock stars and kind of create this weird, like, what is this? Uh, a bit of intrigue and mystery around it. It must have been really interesting for you as when you are running the social accounts, you know, and you see these questions coming in from people that start following you on Instagram or Twitter and thinking, what is this? You know, I've seen my favourite musician or, you know, one of my favourite soccer players or football players wearing this jersey. Like, do they support this team? Is this a real team? Like, how were you as coming back to people and saying this is what Ashbury Park FC was? Or did you like that there was a bit of a mystery around it? Is that part of the endearing, intriguing part that makes you special? Yeah, at first we were very vague about it. You know what I mean? We would answer, people would reach out to us on social media, on Twitter, or Instagram, or whatever. And we'd be very vague in our responses. So it was never a yes, never a no kind of thing. You know, we just um, left people guessing, so to speak. But, you know, after a while, probably about nine months, year into it, you know, you can only do that for a certain amount of time, you know. And, uh, then we sort of kind of like, oh, we start letting people in and people, we let people realize it, but we never verbally confirm it, you know? Um, and it was cool. And then the 20, I guess it'd be 2016, US elections happened. And the advent of fake news becoming a, a top line talking point in American politics. And, uh, you know, at that point, we kind of like, oh, okay, we need to pull back on some of the things we were doing. Like, we were doing a, a lot of fake press releases and things like that. And we kind of toned that down because we didn't want to be seen as part of that problem or sort of making light of this very uh, serious, serious situation. Um, sure. So we kind of pulled back and then we kind of got a little bit more open about the open secret, you know. But... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's funny. You know, we, we everyone now pretty much knows it's fake. Like when people, some people discover it and they're like, well, "What in the hell is this?" Yeah. And then after that, you know, they have probably maybe fifteen minutes of thinking, "Is this real? Is it not real?" But you know, if you spend fifteen minutes looking at, it, you'll figure out. Okay, this is clearly a joke. <laughs> you know. And I know that you guys have, you've obviously got bands that sponsor the front of the jerseys, for example. I noticed mm. the Bouncing Souls one that I'm a huge fan of them and I thought, oh, I really oh, want yeah. to get my hands on that. And I think it was gone uh, as soon as it went on sale, to be honest. But I've also seen, you know, you've had the scarves. It's like you'd, you'd see these half and half scarves at games, which again, <laughs> ties back to that very modern football type thing. Uh, and you, you'll get fans moaning that I don't want a Man United and a Man City scarf. That's ridiculous. But I seen that you guys had like a bad religion, the Ashby yeah. Park. So it's almost like 
to people looking in from the outside, these games are taking place, but what, what do you mean bad religion are playing against Ashley Park? And what do you mean the Bouncing Souls are, uh, are sponsoring a football team? How, how do you go about selecting which bands you get involved? Is that through friends and... Yeah, it's all just it's all just our network, you know. Um, we're lucky, like say in Asbury, we have a really, you know, it's a town that's known for music, you know. Um, yeah. Even through Asbury Park, had a lot of ups and downs in the early part, you know, early part of the 20th century, you know. Even I mean, going from the 1800s to the 1950s, you know, Asbury Park was a place you took your family for a good, you know, working class holiday, you know. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, at first it was very like in the Victorian era, it was very bourgeois. It was very like if you you had money and you lived in New York or Philadelphia, you would take a steamship down the coast to Asbury Park and you'd walk the walk the boardwalk and the promenade with your your parasol and your your white dress and all that. But you know, like say thirties, forties, fifties, it became like a real working class holiday place with a lot of amusement parks and things, almost like a you know, like in England, like a, a, a Blackpool or a yeah, Brighton. Yeah, like a Blackpool or a Scarborough or somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. But then in the 60s, like a lot of America, there are, you know, really, really intense race riots. And they, you know, I think probably a third of the town was burned to the ground. And, you know, the middle class just left. And uh, you had a good 40 years, you know, from the 60s to like the early 2000s where it was, it was, it was really, you know, really rough, really a hellhole, you know, yeah. just, it was really bad. Um, but now it's on the up and out, you know, there's a lot of people reinvesting and a lot of people buying property and new businesses and things like that. It's healthier than it's been in a while in a very long time. But even through all those rough patches, music was always a thing. So even in the seventies and eighties, when, you know, there were tumbleweeds going down the beach and, you know, you could get stabbed pretty easily. <laughs> you always had clubs like the Stone Pony and the Saint and the Wonder Bar and uh, the Fast Lane, you know, all these great live music venues. And that's kind of what is just, it's just in the DNA of this town. And, you know, think of every band from New Jersey. Doesn't matter if you go back to Bruce Springsteen in the 70s to Bon Jovi in the 80s and you fast forward to the 2000s and, Gaslight Anthem, My Chemical Romance, Bouncing Souls. Yeah. All those bands cut their teeth in Asbury Park. All those bands played here, you know. Um, so it's kind of this de facto hometown for rock music in the state of state of New Jersey. Um, and we're lucky enough that a lot of those guys still live around here, you know. So we're able to, you know, call up the Bouncing Souls and say, hey, you got a show coming up. We have an idea for something cool, you know. And they're always like, yeah, let's, let's do it, you know. And, you know, the Bad Religion scarf came about because one of those guys in Bad Religion ended up marrying a girl from uh, the next town over, Neptune City. Right. So, we, yeah, we well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you about that because I noticed that you've kind of created a little rivalry with Neptune City. Yeah, you know, everybody needs a villain, you know. <laughs> Celtic need Rangers. Hearts exactly. need Hibs, you know. Everybody, exactly. need, everybody needs a villain. So, uh, yeah, we created Neptune City and kind of, Again, the great thing about football is there's always something to poke fun at. You know what I mean? Like there's always something to poke fun at. And, you know, the state of modern football, nothing is more modern football than the city football group, you know, with Man City, NYCFC, um, Melbourne City in Australia. They've now got a club in Korea or no, Japan. They've got a club there as well. You know, there's nothing more more modern football than this, this sort of franchise football that they have, you know. So we're like, oh, well, we'll make Neptune City and we'll do it with the exact same sort of powder blue jerseys. The sponsor is, uh, instead of Etihad Airlines, we have one called All I Had Airways. 
which is if it, you know, it's a, like, like a budget carrier, you know, it's more like an easy jet than a, than the Emirates, you know, yeah. and you know, the bad rips them off and everything. Um, yeah. It's, it's the great thing about, you know, football, it's just, it's such a fertile ground for things to make fun of. It's so ridiculous. Like the entire concept and business of what's turned into soccer is just ridiculous now, you know? So I find it interesting as well, because obviously we're, we're in Scotland here and, I think, you know, there's almost a bit of, I don't know the right word for it, but it's almost as if Scottish football is not quite as commercialised as of yet as you would say to England or the Bundesliga in Germany or even La Liga in Spain. And I think we almost see ourselves as, oh, we really hope we don't go down that modern football route. So, for example, I'm a, I'm a Motherwell fan and we're a fan-owned club at the moment, playing in the Premier League. And we kind of pride ourselves on the fact that we're still owned by the fans, you know, we've not bought into this commercialisation of the game, but at, on the other side of that, there is only so far that you can take that. And the States, I think, is the perfect example of how football has grown. And they've kind of taken this modern football culture, but they've made it great. You know, I think you look at teams like like in LA, and obviously it didn't, it didn't work at first with the Galaxy as well, but you've got the, the new team out there. Is it LAFC, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it seems like they've really made their own culture and, and made it their own. And, the MLS is, is growing in a pace that most leagues could never keep up with. No, absolutely not. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating because the model here is something that kind of only works in, it's unique to America. You know what I mean? Like you could never, uh, you could never just grow a premiership team in Scotland or England or Germany out of thin air. You gotta, you know, you gotta buy that club in the, fourth division, you know, and, you know, yeah. to keep it modern football, what like Red Bull's done in Germany, right? They buy a team oh, in the fourth okay. division and, you know, four years later, they're in the Champions League, you know, it's, yeah, you, but, but you couldn't start at the top, you know, yeah. from scratch, you could not start at the top. And that's something uniquely American. And the interesting thing is you have this huge, you have a lot of people who are football fans in America who are like, oh, yeah, they really, they really want promotion and relegation. But the reality is, you know, MLS is still growing. It's still expanding because it's America's a massive country. You know, you can't have a 20-team league here. Every sports league, whether it's basketball, hockey, uh, football, whatever, American football, they're all, you know, 32 to 35 teams or 36 teams, something like that, you know. So MLS has still got room to grow, but you can't go to a billionaire. You know, you can't go to Bill Gates. You can't go to Mark Cuban. You can't go to any of these guys and say, hey, we want you to invest in this sport. You know, give us half a billion dollars for, to build a stadium, to build a, a roster, and to pay your franchise fee. But here's the thing. Here's the catch. If you have a crap year, <laughs> you're out. Yeah, for year one. So give us half a billion dollars. And if your team is crap, which most expansion teams in almost every sport are, you're out. You're playing in the minor leagues. And you can't you can't do that. You know I mean? Like there's not, there's, there's not one investor in America that's going to go, are you? No, <laughs> no, get out, get out of my office. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the other, the other part of that is, you know, because you don't have that risk as a potential investor, you know, they're able, they've been able to, especially in the last, gosh, the last 10 years, you know, they've added 12 teams. I believe yeah. if I get, if I get it right. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, you know, they're able to move at this pace. And the interesting thing is all the newer clubs 
are a much bigger deal for the most part than the original clubs, you know? Yeah. The original well, clubs. What's that down to, Sean? Do you think that's... They, they maybe got it wrong the first time and didn't get... like I, I read a book actually on a podcast with the offer for it, 1312, Among the Ultras, it's called, James Montague, who writes for The Guardian and mm-hmm. other publications over here. But he went out to the States and he says, you know, if you look at the ultra culture or fan culture, so to speak, a lot of the time people look at America and think, you know, it's it's really plastic and it's, you know, because it doesn't have the violent aspects or whatever else. Mm-hmm. But the, the reason I, I go back to LAFC again is he, he talks in detail about that, is how the Galaxy was kind of out of town when they first uh, built up. Stadium wasn't really in the best location. Then you take this LAFC, who's primarily, you know, from quite a working class neighbourhood where they've got a lot of people with Hispanic roots or uh, from South America and who, who really got football and they've, they've always had you know a soccer team to follow but not had one on their doorstep and it, it took off more than the way that the galaxy has because it seems like it was maybe a bit more thought through you know what the thing is when mls started in 96 they didn't have a pot to piss in you know there was no money um we just had the 94 world cup here in the states and that was you know by far the biggest moment in in the game in this country in 15 years. You know, the last time anyone paid attention to soccer in this country was probably 1979 when Pele retired with the New York Cosmos. Um, That's right, yeah. He came over yeah. his exhibition year almost, wasn't it? Yeah, he was there for three seasons, you know, and he brought, I mean, the Cosmos were massive. The Cosmos were drawing 75,000 people to Giant Stadium. You know, the Cosmos, yeah. the, the New York Cosmos were the blueprint for modern football, right? They were the yeah. first rock star football team. If you think about the 1970s, you know, if you were a club in Scotland, 80% of your roster was Scottish boys. Oh, yeah. you, might, yeah, you might have a couple of guys from Northern Ireland. You might have a couple of guys from Ireland. You might have a couple of guys from English. But, you know, by and large, they were Scottish. Same thing. If you had a German club, you might have two or three Austrians there. But it was largely yeah. German players. And until the New York Cosmos came and they brought in – Pele and Roberto Carlos from Brazil. They had Franz Beckenbauer from Germany. They had uh, Giorgio Cinalia, the Italian, come over from Napoli. They were like that first club to like bring right. We're going to go get the best guys from all these these yeah. countries and, and put them together. Never heard of before that, was it? it was what's going on? Yeah. This is really yeah. new. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was mind blowing. And they they came at it. You know, the owner was a gentleman named Steve Ross, who was a big record executive. Um, he was partnered with uh, the Erdogan brothers, Ahmed Erdogan, who you know. They discovered Led Zeppelin. You know, there were all these like rock and roll music types. So they bought this club, put it in New York City, you know, the epicenter of the world at the peak of the disco era, you know. Um, Fascinating. Like they just, they literally were the world's first super club, you know. But by the time MLS came around, that was a very, very, very distant memory. And so the first, you know, 15 years of MLS were really a a struggle. It was really just trying to keep the lights on. You know, they're trying to keep the costs low because what killed, um, the NASL, which is the league the Cosmos were in, was what killed them was the Cosmos. The Cosmos went out and spent all this crazy money and every other team tried to keep up with them and they didn't have, you know, A, there's only one Pele, right? Every, <laughs> yeah. every, every team wants to go out and get their own Pele. Yeah, you know. And then you had a lot of clubs, you know, people putting teams in cities that had no history, no connection, no knowledge of soccer. You had teams in places like Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Las Vegas, Nevada, you know, there's a team in Las Vegas that signed uh, Eusebio, you know, yeah, Portuguese, great. great. Yeah, and Eusebio came and played for two years in America, and 
he was supposed to be there. You know, he's going to be our Pele in Las Vegas, and no one knows who Eusebio is in Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pele was. was and yeah, so it's you know they spent all this money to get these players that no one was going to pay to come see. So MLS um, really tried to go in the opposite direction of that and really tried to limit spending. So for the first 10, 15 years, you know, it was largely you know American college players made up the sort of real bulk of the players. And, and you, you know, you'd have the occasional uh, Lothar Mateus or Roberto Donadani who would come over for you know six months to a year at age. 37, you know, and, and trot around. But until Beckham came, you know, that was really like the spark, you know. And yeah. uh, he, A, changed, you know, the way the contracts and things were structured so that you could actually pay some people real money to come over and play. But he also got the sponsors, you know, he brought enough attention to the league that sponsors really started paying attention. And, yeah. you, could, you know, they got this 10-year deal with Adidas to, kit out the whole team, the whole league, you know, for a boatload of money. And you've got sponsors now like uh, Coca-Cola and Heineken, Audi, all these really top tier sponsors. Yeah. You've got a great TV deals with ESPN and um, Fox, you know, which are both huge uh, networks here in the States. And, you know, the new teams, the thing is, you know, the, well, the other thing is the stadiums too, which you alluded to with Galaxy. You know, MLS had no leverage and had no cachet. No one was really trying to give the money. So, if they were able to build a stadium anywhere, if anyone was like, oh, yeah, you can build here, they would go, you know, because yeah. not many people would offer. So they ended up the first generation of stadiums that the league played in were all these oversized NFL stadiums. And they realized, okay, this isn't going to work. It looks bad because there's only 20,000 people in a 90,000-seat stadium. Yeah. We're paying rent to be in these stadiums, so it doesn't make financial sense. So they started to build their own stadiums. The only people that would give them to them were in these weird, far-flung locations. So. Yeah. You know, these teams end up playing, you know, an hour outside of town, you know, teams in Colorado, Chicago, Los Angeles, Dallas, they're all playing an hour away from the city. So you're not really getting, you know, yeah. Uh, that. Oh, it is, it is. yeah. So this new generation of clubs are, you know, they've got all these things going for them. And one of the things they're going for them is they're actually building like LAFC. They're playing right downtown. Atlanta is playing right downtown. Seattle, Portland, they play right downtown. And you can see the difference, man. Those clubs that are really in the heart of the city where, you know, nightlife and culture and youth are where yeah. people go out, you know, they do really well. <laughs> Even with the Timbers there, for example, it seems like these, it's like a real lifeblood of the community, doesn't it? And there seems to be like youth cultures and politics seem to be spilling into that there as well. And it seems to be almost in the MLS. And correct me if I'm wrong, and this is an outsider's view looking in. But it seems like a lot of these football clubs and fan groups really use that as a way to political expression where they're, they're maybe filling a field where there's no no other kind of place for that. So they're taking it to the terraces and saying, yeah, I've seen lots of protests against Trump and there, there was the almost like the, not anti-fascist, but there was yeah. quite, a lot, quite a lot of the, you know, the flags along those lines in the stadiums and the MLS were trying to ban them. And I thought it's really interesting to see that. It's almost a bit rebellious in nature. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you know, in Portland being the, the strongest example, there's there's something about football culture in America that, you know, in a lot of ways, for, for a long time, I mean, it's going quite mainstream now, but for a long time, soccer in America was that team sport for people who didn't like team sports. Sure. You know, like if you don't, you know, 
if you're not going to an NFL game because you find the NFL culture too too much chicken wings and light beer, you know, <laughs> like the stereotypes of American uh, football fans, American football fans, you know, a lot of people that wasn't for them. They were kind of punk rock and they were, you know, into a little bit left of center things, a little bit more well-read, a little bit more into alternative music and things like that. They kind of gravitated towards soccer. Um, and then you have, you have a place like Portland. Portland is, is very interesting because um, I mean, there's, I'm, I'm sure there's books written about it. Actually, I know there's one, but you know, Portland was that one club that they were around in the seventies during that NASL era playing against the cosmos and things like that. And that league folded in the early eighties. And then the Timbers became like a minor league team for 20 years. And the interesting thing is, is people kept going. They always had supporters, even before they were in, it was interesting, the year before they, two years before they came into MLS, they were out drawing like three or four teams in MLS, you know, just because like they've no, always, yeah, that was amazing. Like they, you know, they were, they were this minor league club and playing in a league that, you know, the average attendance was like 3000 people a game and they were drawing 12, you know. Okay. But it's an interesting city because, you know, again, there's something in Portland. There's a there's something in the, in the roots of that city that are very kind of rebellious and very kind of uh, left of center, very thinking, very politically charged. You know, it's just it's just that kind of town. Um, and the other, crucially, they only had one other professional sports team they had a basketball team, which hasn't been good since the 90s. <laughs> yeah so this this soccer team just kind of became this weird there's a culture around it you know what i mean like a real culture of everything from you know if you go to a basketball game it's like yeah you go to the game game night you come home you might see some of the highlights watch a little sports center and see the pundits talk about it but there's no like you know you don't go and get together with a bunch of friends to make banners you don't start a charitable foundation to build basketball courts and underserved neighborhoods around town. The fans don't create their own merch lines that outsell the team, you know, and that's the kind of thing that happens in Portland, you know, because uh, those are the kind of things that go on in football culture and in, 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 even in America where, you know, football is not the main sport and has to share the limelight. There's, there's something there. There's this, this thing about activism as opposed to, there are some supporters groups in America that, you know, refer to themselves as ultras. Um, and it's kind of ridiculous, <laughs> you know, like honestly, you know, I mean, I, I've been in supporters group for many years uh, in New York and we like to go drink a couple of beers, sing a couple of inappropriate songs, cheer the team on, but it's, you know, it's not about trying to be green street hooligans or anything like that. Unfortunately, there are some, some people in this country who've seen one too many movies and, seem to think that's cool and want to it's like they're trying to create a culture that's not there you know all yeah. the all, all those factors that contributed to hooliganism in the 80s during like the thatcher era you know the the unemployment and you know sort of general listless listlessness and um unhappiness and nothing else to do and being on the dole and you yeah. know having legions of young men with nothing else to do but get pissed drunk and and, and, and start shit like those factors aren't here, so I don't know why you're trying to create it. But for whatever reason, we do have some people who think that's worth glorifying. And, and like you said, you know, these things didn't come out of nothing. There was that sense of, you know, there, there's nothing else to do. And this is uh, a sense of rebellion, like you mentioned, certainly in 
in Motherwell where we're from. I think a lot of the casual movement and the hooligan movement was built out of Thatcherism and the fact that they closed the steelworks here and a lot of people were unemployed and it was a release for many people. And if, if you've not got that there, then it's, it's very hard to build that culture. On the flip side, I feel that sometimes in, in British sport, we almost try to take an American culture that doesn't exist yet and, and we can over-commercialise things, but there's there's obviously many benefits to that as well. I think that, uh, I mean, if you look at the American culture and sport, not just in soccer, but across the board, you've got these, uh, what do you call it, tailgate parties, for example, uh, in advance, like where everyone's meeting up in the car park beforehand, hours before the game, and, and people are, are really buying into it. And I think that's maybe something that lacks in Britain. You know, there's not the same build-up to events as there is uh, in, in the States, and that's maybe something that we could take on board and adapt. Yeah, I mean, I I, I like that. I mean, it's, I one thing I like about soccer in America is this this hybrid thing. It's this real mutt culture, you know, where we take this 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 British game, and we've kind of molded it to fit our country, both in in ways that are good and bad. But you know, I love the fact that like I take my son to a game. It's it's an all day thing. You know, I don't think that's the way it should be, Sean. I really yeah. do. Yeah, I mean, it's in a sports with entertainment, and it's you know, <laughs> it's funny in America. This is a very weird thing to say. I've, I've said this a thousand times over the years, and 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 people look at me like I'm nuts. But sports is entertainment, man. On a Saturday afternoon, you know, you've worked all week, and what are you going to do with your Saturday to to blow off steam? Are you going to go see a football match? Are you going to go to the cinema? Are you going to go to a concert? Are you going to go? F- Fishing, whatever it is, right? Whatever you're going to do to entertain yourself. Sports is that. And a lot of people here seem to think that sports is a higher thing than that, especially the baseball people. The baseball fans think that, you know, baseball is is, is, is near a religion. Um, I don't believe that. I'm not of that school of thought. I'm of the school of thought that sport is, um, you know, just your, your choice of entertainment, the same as going to a concert is, you know. And it's great. And you get, there's a feeling there that you get that you might not be able to get anywhere else. but um that sort of thing i love i remember before i moved to new jersey i'm originally from texas okay i graduated university on a saturday by tuesday i'd moved to london had no job no place to live was just kind of shacking up with a mate and you know had like two backpacks in a suitcase and i just moved over there and ended up getting a job and stayed over for about a year or whatever and i was going to fulham and um this was 2000 2001 season it was the year they won promotion and i hadn't been in the premiership since the 70s and uh you know blinding team i mean they won the first 11 games and i'll never forget you know usually the the back pages of the papers in london you know that that sunday paper usually the back pages you know here's you know it's usually arsenal it's tottenham it's yeah yeah chelsea it's always man united it's always one of the big clubs and I remember, like, you know, the season starts and, you know, people, you know, you go down and have breakfast. Oh, right, Fulham doing all right in the season. Yeah, they won, you know, seven, eight games. By the time they win nine or ten games, people are really talking about it. Or, and I remember it was the, the tenth game. They won the tenth game in a row. And Fulham were on the back page. <laughs> and it was like suddenly, you know, suddenly, yeah, what's going on? So we go to the next, you know, the next game, the eleventh game of the season. Suddenly, you can't get a ticket to Craven Cottage. You know, like they're the hottest thing going. Yeah, um, you know, but they had a great time. They had Luis Saha before Man United came for him. They had Edwin Van Rossar, then Man United came for him. 
Um, they had Louis Bormorte. They had uh, just had a real, they had a really solid team. Uh, uh, Chris Coleman, I remember, you know, like Chris Coleman was a player. I remember getting up one day and going to eat breakfast and opening the paper, and he was injured in the car accident the night before, and then he, you know, that was the end of his career and he became manager. But they had a really solid team. But the thing I was struck by is like, you, you, you walked to the ground, you bought your ticket, you went inside, you saw the match. You might go to a pub afterwards and get a pint. But that was it. That was the yeah, whole experience. It was like going to the cinema. You know, you just went in, you paid your money, you saw the thing, and you left. Right. Um, so that's one thing I love about it here. It's you know, it's a whole day thing. We we'll meet in the parking lot before and catch up with all the guys that you're gonna that you've been standing with, you know, behind the goal, singing and drinking with for 15 years. You know, it's really the only time you hang out. You know, so you you yeah. go a couple of hours before and you, you cook out and you know have a few drinks and a few laughs. It's a good time. And then if you win. Afterwards, you know, you'd like to hang out a little bit longer in the parking lot. If you had a crap day, you want to get in your car and get the hell home. But <laughs> do, do you have an MLS team, Sean, or is it very much just APFC for you? No, no. I've been a season ticket holder for uh, uh, Red Bull New York since when they were, used to be called the Metro Stars before Red Bull bought them and went all modern football with them. Sure. Um, yeah, I've been a season ticket holder for them for about 16 years now. Mm. And how, how was the transition to Red Bull? Did most of the supporters kind of take that on board and were happy with the investment? Or was no. there any... No. Was, <laughs> it, was, it, was it more like the, the German model over in Leipzig as well? Which was uh, just even... Derek, tell me one, one football supporter who's ever been happy when uh, random foreign ownership has come over and bought their club. <laughs> Never. <laughs> for me, the, the Red Bull thing, Sean, is it's it's not like they're just changing the name. They're changing the colours and the brand and everything. Yeah. Else. Well, that, was a, that was a very interesting one because the, the New York club in Red Bull, again, they're like Man City. They've got five different outfits now. Um, Austria, the US, Germany, Brazil, and they have uh, some sort of it's like an academy almost in Ghana, in West Africa. But the when they came to New York, it was it was it was a rough transition. Now, luckily, MLS wasn't nearly as popular then as it is now. Sure. And basically, they came in and said, "We're going to give you a hundred million dollars for this franchise at a time when, and you could buy an MLS franchise for about seven million dollars." My goodness. And they came in and said, we're going to give you $100 million because we're going to name the team Red Bull and we want to name the stadium Red Bull Arena. And um, Don Garber, who's the commissioner of the league, he was, you know, kind of didn't have a choice. For them at the, at the time, the league was, you know, not necessarily hemorrhaging money, but it certainly wasn't making any money. And uh, he couldn't say no. He couldn't say no. And the one thing he tried to say was, you know, you can put Red Bull as a sponsor because at the time the league didn't allow Jersey front sponsors. And he said, you can be the sponsor of the Jersey. You can be the sponsor of the stadium, but please don't change the name. And they're like, we don't change the name. We're not doing it. So they kind of had to do it. The timing was crazy because it was three weeks before the season started. Okay. Like, li like literally the new kits had gone on, the, on sale the week before. <laughs> and those are a very rare thing. And this is 2000 years this uh, I want to say 2006. Yeah, 2006. If you can find a 2006 Metro Stars jersey, like, oh, it's gold because they were yeah. literally only available for a week, you know. That's brilliant. They were for fortune on eBay or something. Oh, yeah, man. They were, clean. they were probably the best-looking kids ever made, ironically <laughs> enough. 
But, you know, it was a very rough transition because three weeks before the season, you come in and say, right, we're changing the name, we're changing the colors, and it's a soft drink, you know, that doesn't necessarily have the best reputation. It'd be like, you know, I don't know, Lucasade came in and bought Dundee or something. You'd be like, what? <laughs> and, and name the team Dundee Lucasade. <laughs> you just like, what is this, you know? Um, so it was, yeah, it was rough. You know, it was really rough. There was a, I mean, it's, it, it was a good seven or eight years before like the hardcore fans quit whinging and moaning about it 24 seven. And now I think everyone's just kind of come into this thing of acceptance, but most of us old school guys, we still refer to them as Metro, you know, <laughs> okay. we, you know, you don't see us where, you know, no one tends to buy the new gear. You see, you can tell who's been there a long time because they're wearing like the old school Metro mm-hmm. stars gear, which hasn't sure. been made in 15 years, but they still, you know, we're scouring eBay for things and, you know, Anytime guys are like, oh, look, I've got some stuff that doesn't fit anymore. They always put it in like these fan forums so that, you know, the other guys that are real fans can get their hands on it. So nothing goes to waste. Nothing gets thrown away, you know. Um, the same, you know, the same Metro Star mm-hmm. jersey has been passed around to probably five different people, you know, before it'll ever see the garbage can. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, a, yeah. It was, was there was, many people that left and never came back, Sean? Was there, yeah, was, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely a lot. And I, you know, it was, it was it was interesting because the Austrian, they took over that Austrian team in Salzburg first. And that was a really rough transition. They basically came in, they changed the colors, they changed the name, they expelled the supporters group. Um, you were not allowed to wear any of the old teams. It was badges. the purple shirts, wasn't it? The purple yeah. shirts. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. They started, they've done like a kind of, similar to FC United in Manchester, they've started their own kind of Austria Salzburg team. Yeah. yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah. But I think um, they went so aggressive with the Austrian team, with Salzburg, that by the time they got to New York, they kind of toned it down a little. And again, luckily, you know, the team in Salzburg was the lifeblood of a community. MLS team in New York City is, the, you know, we've got 12 other professional sports teams yeah. that people think of ahead of that, you know. Um, New York is a very special and difficult market you know, because you have the New York Yankees and the New York Mets in baseball. You have the Jets and Giants in American football. You have three hockey teams. You have two basketball teams and now two MLS teams. And, you know, as much as I hate to say it, you know, basketball is a huge thing in New York. And, you know, if one of the college basketball teams is having a big year, you know, they can, they can sell out Madison square garden. So, you know, it takes a lot for people to kind of get invested in, in soccer here and, you know, the thing with the two clubs here is their stadium situations are less than ideal. I'll say the new club in YCFC, they play at Yankee stadium, which is a baseball stadium. It's, actually, yeah. it's, it's a terrible viewing experience because the, the mile is back from the park. Yeah. yeah. The dimensions of a field don't fit in there. The, f- the field is really small, but it's not the right angles, you know? So you're yeah. sitting way back, you know, um, they're trying to build a new stadium, but, New York City space is the ultimate commodity. So trying to get enough space to build a yeah, stadium. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're going to be looking for years. The Red Bulls, on the other hand, have a brilliant stadium. I mean, it's a gorgeous stadium. Um, but it's on the other side of the river in New Jersey. And now I live in New Jersey. I don't care. I don't have a thing. But people who are, f- and I'm not from here. You know, I moved yeah. to this area when I was 23 years old. Um, so I don't have the, the implicit prejudices and things. Yeah. But it's weird. People that live in New York, like they, they, they think the, the, the Hudson River is made of 
you know, electric eels or something like they're not going to cross it. No, they don't want to cross it. So they've got this gorgeous stadium that no one from New York wants to go to. Um, and then people in New Jersey will go, but you know, people in New Jersey are like, why is this called Ripple New, New York when it's in yeah. New Jersey? So they've b- both, it's a shame because this should be the biggest, and it is, it's the biggest soccer market in America. Yeah. It's not the biggest MLS market. Yeah. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. Oh man, you can you can do documentaries for days on, on on soccer culture in New York. It's so fascinating, and you know you can get up on a Saturday morning, any day, you know any 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 time of the year, and walk around Manhattan. And there's pubs filled, and it does not matter what league you're into. Some people, you know, you can go up to the Upper East Side to a place called the Parlor, and it's filled with Celtic fans watching a Scottish Cup final at seven thirty in the morning. Mm-hmm. You can go. Um, up to Harlem, and you will find. Um, <laughs> I watched a World Cup game there once. This is um, there's not many gas stations or auto, auto, you know, any automotive things in Manhattan. Yeah. There's none of it. I think in Manhattan there's only like four gas stations, but we yeah. have all these taxi cabs. I was so going to say that's crazy with the amount of yellow cabs. Huh? Yeah. So there's this one place up in Harlem that's got like a gas station and like an auto body shop where the cabbies go and get their tires fixed or get their oil changes or whatever. And all these like uh, Senegalese and Ghanaian and like West African cab drivers all sit and watch football in this one little bar, yeah bar across the street yeah like you That's can find amazing. yeah it's, it's I always say man this is a bit of a, a side side tangent but if you can't go to the World Cup come to New York for the World Cup because it doesn't matter what what your country is it doesn't matter what countries make the World Cup. They have people in New York, and they have a bar in New York, <laughs> and it's you that's know. a brilliant analogy, actually. Unfortunately, Scotland never get to the World Cup, regardless. So we'd we'd, we'd maybe come over there and have to support uh, the states or something like that. Yeah. Uh, man, I root for you guys every qualifying. I would love to see it. I would absolutely love to see it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's, there's so many great footballers. There's, you know, all right, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be that guy. There's so many great British footballers that aren't English that it's such a shame they never got a World Cup, you know? A George Best will never play in a World Cup. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like them, Aiden, Mc- yeah, Aiden McGeady never will play in a World Cup, you know? Um, Chris, uh, um, Gareth Bale will never play in a World Cup, you know? Like, oh, it's just such, I don't know. I've heard over the years, you know, all these various uh, plots and plans, people saying, oh, we should do a United British team but i'm just like That's it. You, you look at oh, i wouldn't i don't think i'd be for that but we're not going no, to no, no no one would be for that. <laughs> it's like on paper like yeah it would be a good idea just get the you know that way some of these guys yeah. will never get the opportunity we'll get the opportunity but knowing the history and the beefs yeah. and pettiness now it's, it's not going to work but like you say you know there, there is so many players and you've got andy robertson just now at liverpool who's just won the champions league and he's never well i want to say never but the chances of him playing in a major final is just non-existent at the moment, you know. So, I really, man, think about George Best, like one of the all-time <laughs> greats. Like, never even remotely got a sniff, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. So, what's uh, what, what's the future for Ashbury Park and, and Sean Francis? Then, what, what's what's in the pipeline going forward? Obviously, it's been uh, a difficult time just now, so hard to see. What? Yeah, well, right now we're taking. You know, we always try and keep everything rooted in culture. Usually, our local culture and. Right now, there's a global cultural moment of quarantine, you know, everyone can relate to. So we just can actually come out with a, a new line of uh, a new line of, of shirts and, and sweatshirts that are uh, 2020 indoor champions. 
I like them because <laughs> right now we're all <laughs> we're all champions <laughs> when it comes to being indoors right now. So, um, you know, we're always just looking for what's next, man. Like again, it's football is such a fertile ground. There's always something to poke fun at, you know. The the fun thing about Asbury Park is like Asbury Park Football Club is no one hates us, right? You and I can be sitting around chatting and you know you're a Motherwell fan or whatever, and the second I say I'm, you know. Hearts fan or whatever team, you're like, ah, you know, sure. we're not a real team. So we're the team for everybody. No one's yeah. ever going to get in an argument with you for wearing an APFC kit. In fact, they're going, what is that? That's crazy. And then you tell them the story. Well, it's a team that doesn't exist, but they sell merch and they have all these celebrity mm-hmm. endorsements. Oh, and by the way, you know, if you go see thrice this weekend, they're selling jerseys, thrice jerseys on their tour at the merch stand, you know, like it's this weird thing where, you know, you can't not love it. Yeah. If you're a football I, I, fan, you can't not love it. That's it. And I, and I would like to think that I'm kind of a bit old school and a bit against the whole commercialisation of football. And, and I like to, I like these old stadiums that are falling apart, you know, in Britain where the floodlights are going out and whatever else and the, the bricks are wasting away. But to see this, I, as soon as I seen it, I was really attracted to it. And I thought, that's a fantastic. Well, obviously with your background, it makes a lot of sense. But in terms of marketing, and it's, it's really, really revolutionary. It's a fantastic idea. And, you seem to have hit the nail on the head and got it got it perfect. Oh, it's fun, man. It's fun. It's good time. And for me, it allows me to like try out ideas too, you know, before I go and pitch them to an actual client who's actually gonna pay me money. <laughs> no one I can assure you no one's getting rich off of a fake football team. <laughs> and, uh, oh, so I was gonna ask you that, sorry. It was just what oh, my computer was cutting out there, but it's all good, it's still got charge in it. Uh yeah, I kinda I kinda thought that uh Ashbury Park like would you would you say that you most of your supporters or most of your people that are buying the merch and things comes from the surrounding areas or are you shipping out across the world? Are you? Man, we're shipping across the world. I, I mean, like New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, this area, our home areas. Yeah, that's probably fifty percent of what we do of, our, of where we ship to. But the other fifty, no, I would even say that. I would probably say thirty percent. Then another thirty percent is the rest of America, and then that remaining forty percent is is largely Western Europe. Yeah, I send yeah. something to yeah, you know, maybe once a month I get some weird one from Australia, you know. But a lot of Germany, a lot of Britain, we do a lot of England, um, and it's funny we, we you'll see these spikes, you know, when um, before Gaslight Anthem kind of went on hiatus, you know, when Gaslight would go on tour. I would see these spikes of sales and wherever they were because someone was wearing they something. They wanted to wear it to the show. Yeah. yeah, or someone was wearing it on stage the night before. Yeah. And, you know, Ian's wearing a hat or, or Alex mm-hmm. is wearing a jersey or whatever. And then, like, the next day, I'm like, oh, I got I sold three 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 jerseys in Hamburg. That's random. And then I look at, oh, Gaslight were there last That's night. Nice. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Amazing, eh? Yeah, it's funny. Good. Well, it's a, it's a good journey, and I, I wish you all the best for the future with it as well. Sean. Thanks, appreciate it, man. We'll we'll keep doing, keep keep making fun. Maybe we gotta get Motherwell involved. That would actually be a good one. We haven't done anything with any Scots clubs yet. I think you certainly should. We we'll, um, I'll, I'll put it to the the guys on the board, but I'm sure they'd be more than happy for it. <laughs> be lovely, nice awesome. Well, thanks. Yeah, for no, the- no, thanks very much for your time. To be honest. Yeah.